So the title of the sermon this morning is To Sue or Not to Sue. Uh, and I don't, it's not a great title because it's only where we're starting. Because the text we're going to look at uh, starts there, and that's the kind of practical issue Paul is addressing, but he ends up in a really interesting place. That, so we're going to, it doesn't, if I started there, you would, you would, it would seem random. But put it in the context of this question of can a Christian sue a Christian, and Paul's reason for his answer is really profound and has implications far beyond this one question. Okay, so we'll, we'll answer that question if you're in the middle of thinking about suing someone in the room or whatever, right? right? The answer is just going to be no, you can't. All right, so there, our sermon's over, right? Um, but no, this is really the basis of Paul's response is sort of always his response to everything. And that's where things get convicting, okay? And so let's start 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul's pretty sarcastic and biting in his tone, as he gets occasionally in 1 Corinthians, because the Corinthian church is an absolute mess. But they are still a church. They are still believers. Paul never says, you're not Christians. He says, you're saints, but boy, are you a mess. Stop acting this way because you're saints, all right? And so to answer this question, like apparently in the Corinthian church, people were just like suing each other. Like they'd have a disagreement or an argument or some kind of business transaction that went sideways. We don't get any real details, but apparently there's at least one couple of friends who are suing each other, and by the way he talks about it, this is actually happening a lot, okay? And so he's having to include this in his letter. So the answer, first let's just deal with the practical question. Clearly the answer to the question of if Christians can sue Christians is a resounding and emphatic no. He says, do you, are you so audacious as to do this? Are you so without shame as to do this? He is incensed. It's almost the same level of outrage that he had about last, last week about the guy who was having relations with his mother-in-law, right? I mean, he's kind of going, what's wrong with you, right? He says it would be better actually to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to do this. Imagine that. It would be, if you've been ripped off, he says it would be better... For you to stay ripped off and defrauded than to take your fellow brother or sister into court. 
So here's some common questions that I thought of. Before we get into the grounds of his position, a few obvious objections. One, this does not prohibit calling the police to protect you from harm. Okay, that's not what he's addressing. Sometimes people get those conflated. Well, that means I can't, like, ask my government to do the right thing, to protect the weak. Like, I can't protest something they're doing, or I can't call the police. That's not at all what he's talking about. Um, this doesn't prohibit a Christian from suing a company or an organization that's doing evil in order to stop it from doing evil. Okay, that's another thing that our court system does. That's not wrong. Okay, it's not in view here. That actually didn't exist at the time. <laughs> the idea of like suing your government or suing a corporation that's doing something horrible. All right. This does not stop you from defending yourself from a lawsuit from another Christian. However, before you open up like a trap door of escape hatch, well, I'm being, it does, I think it would say before you even defend yourself in a law, where if you're getting sued from a Christian, is you need to reach out and say, can we arbitrate this in some other way? Can we mediate this privately? Do we have to do this on display in front of the whole world and send them this scripture and maybe this sermon? <laughs> and say, this is not okay, we shouldn't do this, let's settle this some other way, right? So you're looking for an avenue other than just going to court and defending yourself and putting that on display. It also doesn't directly prohibit suing a non-believer, but verse 6 certainly does um, come close to it because of the horrible witness to the world that it entails, there are Christian ways of going about this, and a lawsuit in open court should be seen as an absolute last resort, even against an unbeliever. All right? So, what's Paul's grounds for this rebuke? Why? What's, the, what's his reasoning? Is it only that people, are, people will think bad about us? That's one of his reasons. People will look at Christians doing Christians and go, I thought you guys were supposed to be kind of different and not petty and be able to solve your own problems and be kind of like your founder, Jesus. I thought that's what you were. I can't imagine Jesus suing another Christian. And certainly, what are you doing, right? That's one reason, but there's a deeper reason here. Part of the answer to that has already been given in verses 2 through 4, which I will return to in just a minute. But let's read on for the complete picture, all right? So verses 9 through 11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So every time gives what we call, Paul gives these vice lists or sin lists like he just gave us. And there's, I did a sermon around Christmas where he looked at actually all of them. Every single one of those, he uses nouns and not verbs. And you can see it right here. A noun is like a state of being, right? It's, it, it's, it's an identity word. It's the difference between calling, saying to somebody, you lied to me, and saying to somebody, you are a liar. We all know the difference. 
One is who you are. One is something that you did. And Paul always, when he gives these lists, he uses nouns and not verbs. He uses identity words. Talking about who they are or who they used to be, more specifically. He's talking about a state of being, not mere action. This is because a person is not righteous, believe it or not, because he or she does righteous things. Did you know that? You are not called righteous by God. You are not righteous because you do righteous things. Thank God. You are righteous because Jesus did the righteous thing and he died for you and you get his righteousness. You are righteous because God has declared it about you, not because you do righteous things. Now, righteous people will do righteous things, right? But you can't put the cart before the horse. When you put the righteous deeds before becoming a righteous person, you end up with a false religion. As every other religion in the world has that as its mechanism for faith and practice. Do righteous things, you'll be a righteous person. But Christianity is not that. And Paul always goes there every single time he's answering a question. And here is no different. He says, These are, here's all the nouns that you used to be. You are no longer that. And because you are no longer that, treat each other better. We become righteous by declaration from God, not by righteous deeds. He says here, the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom, not those who do unrighteous things. He says the sexually immoral will not, will not enter the kingdom, not those who do sexually immoral things. He says adulterers will not enter the kingdom, not those who commit adultery. This is profoundly radical. It is not how we think. It is not at all how we think. We think in terms of sanctification being, I start kind of, I used to be this bad person. Really bad. You think I'm bad now, it's really bad back here. And I'm slowly crawling my way forward towards being not a bad person anymore. And it's really hard and it's really difficult and I take three steps forward and two steps back over and over and over again throughout my life. But one day I will be this righteous person in the future that I imagine. And that's where I'm going. But that is not ever what Paul describes as sanctification, even though I may have taught it that way. <laughs> sanctification is just moving between who's deciding whose report am I going to believe about me. Look what he says about, um, at the end of these verses, he says, you were washed, not you washed yourself. In the past, previously, and finished, completed, you were washed, Right? He says, you were sanctified, not you sanctified. You were justified. Who's the passive recipient of those things? You. You are not the active participant. You're not doing any of those verbs. God is doing all of those verbs. So you used to be this noun or this noun, but now you have been washed, not yourself, but by him. You didn't do any of this on your own. You didn't get your act together and change yourself, get all self-actualized and pull yourself together, get your will really focused and right and pull yourself together. And then God said, okay, now you're righteous or you're sort of righteous. I'll meet you halfway. I'll do the rest. And it's not at all what happened. 
we go back to the verses we've already read, this is how it can be true, right, that these messed up Corinthian believers who are suing each other into oblivion are also saints who will judge the world and judge the angels with Christ. He says to these messed up people, you're going to rule and reign with Christ, and you'll sit there like, like on his throne, I imagine like squeezed in next to him, like a child who belongs there because it's their daddy. But when Jesus is judging the universe and ruling over it for all eternity, we're there doing it with him. And he's like, and you're going to go to a pagan, unrighteous court to judge you? What is, what, do you not know who you are? <laughs> do you not see what you are? Can you not imagine what you are destined for and what God says about you? Because if you understood that, it wouldn't even occur to you for a second to go to the world to, to seek justice. It wouldn't even occur to you. It's absolutely insane. Do you know who you are? This is what Martin Luther called the at-the-same-time nature of the gospel. He had this Latin phrase, which I'm not going to give you, because you would mock me, because I can't say it right anyway, right? But it basically meant at the same time, justified and sinner. You encounter this over and over in the Bible, don't you? Where you kind of go, man, and you feel this. We all feel it. I'm a mess. I'm a worm. I'm a slug. I'm a snake in the grass. I'm a mess. I'm broken. I do dumb things all the time. I I don't listen to God when I should. I don't obey him. I don't pay attention to him. I don't, I, I don't always love my neighbor very well. I can be petty. I can be short-tempered, impatient, all these jealous, covetous, all these things. We just constantly feel this. I'm such a mess. But at the same time, God says, justified. God saves sinners. I think the way to make sense of that, what Martin Luther struggled with, is to recognize that from God's vantage point, when he looks at us, he does not see sinner. He doesn't. It's not that he's blind. It's that he, any sin that is in your life that you're doing or any failure is just on Christ. So when he looks at you, he actually sees saint. He's not like pretending like we kind of tend to do with our kids when they're kind of blowing it and we go, no, it's fine, honey. And your voice goes up really high and you try not to sound patronizing, but you know it's not fine, right? He's not doing that with you. He's actually saying, this is what you are. This is how I see you right now in this moment. But from our vantage point, we see all this struggle. Going back to this idea of sanctification, this is what sanctification really is. It's that you're not moving from unrighteous to righteous your whole life, scraping and clawing and sweating your, your way into the kingdom of God. Instead, you were just, it's just moving from whose report am I going to believe? I'm not going to believe my own report about myself. What I say I am, who I say I am. I am a sinner. If I, Ben Cotton, look at Ben Cotton's life 
and his heart, and I tally up the score, I'm going to come out saying, I'm a sinner. But when God looks at me and he declares me to be righteous, the question is, whose word is the final word? Whose report am I going to believe about me? Am I going to believe me about me or maybe other people who really don't like you or really know what a mess you are? Are you going to believe them or are you going to believe God? And growing up and maturing in Christ is ultimately not about doing better. It's about just believing what he says about you more and more and more. And the wonderful thing is, the more you believe that, the more you trust his word as the final word about you, the less you sin. It's a beautiful thing. You get both. <laughs> you get both this life-giving identity that you didn't earn at all yourself or do for yourself. You couldn't wash yourself. You couldn't justify yourself. You couldn't have mercy on yourself, but he did it for you. You get that, and you act better. <laughs> it won't occur to you to sue your brother or sister. You don't have to have Paul tell you not to do that. You don't have to come to your pastor and say, I'm not sure what to do here. I've been ripped off by a neighbor who's a believer. I'm not sure if I could sue. You don't even have to ask the question because who you are is different. And here's what else. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. Well, I know we're not in 2 Corinthians. I'm cheating a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So this obviously, this is like summarizing everything I just said. This obviously transforms the way we see ourselves and the way we act, right? But you know what else it does? It transforms the way we see each other. This loops back to the question about suing. Our tendency is always to define others by what they do, especially what they do to us or fail to do for us, right? You talked behind my back or you let me down or you betrayed me or whatever, and now that is all you are to me. It's not just a verb that you did. It's a noun of who you are. And now I've locked you in this cage of what you did to me, or what you failed to do for me. And this is all you are to me. And you, never, you, will, you can try, but you will never escape the cage. You will always be that thing that you did. And you can do a bunch of good stuff, and maybe if you try really hard, and you earn your way back, and you do really good things to prove to me that you are not that person, then I will let you out of the cage. Thank God God doesn't do that with us. It's especially easy to do this with public figures, isn't it? Because there's distance relationally. We hear about some pastor falling or some leader or whoever, somebody we don't really know. Maybe you listen to their podcast or something. And so there's no, not even a, a super easy to go, oh, evil. Wicked, you don't know. Is that what God says? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. 
It's when we realize that it's God's declaration over us that determines if we're righteous or unrighteous, not the verbs, it's the nouns, then it changes how we look at people when they fail. Instead, we confront sin, right? This doesn't mean we don't confront sin, so don't take me the wrong way. Paul would say, by no means. <laughs> Sin's a big deal. He just gave us a list, right? Instead, we confront sin on the basis of what God says about the person's identity. We think about the nouns and the verbs according to how God defines them. We say, hey, don't, don't do that, because that's not who you are. Not, why are you such a jerk? You say, hey, don't do that. That's not who you are. This radically transforms how we deal with people that hurt us, how we deal with people that fall publicly, how we deal with children that disobey, how we relate to people who struggle with bondages that last for long periods of time. So we'll be quick to forgive those that hurt us. We'll refuse to define people by their sin, even when they do so publicly. We'll discipline our children with the goal of training and not punishment. You know, you don't have to punish your kids' sin. I'm not talking about mistakes. I'm talking about actual sin. You're not paying them back for talking back to you. You're training them not to do that anymore. And there's a difference in the tone. You may actually discipline with the same actions. One's different from the other. Punishment is you owe me and you owe God and I'm going to beat you until I feel you have somehow made up for this eternal weight of sin that's on your back. You see how you discipline differently? As opposed to you, I don't want you acting this way. I want you, you're better than this. God says better about you than this. God has declared you righteous and I expect you to act like it. And so I'm going to train you to do that. That's different. It might look the same on the outside. But how they receive that discipline is different. The same thing is how you confront somebody who's hurt you and say, one has the goal of restoration, another has the goal of making you pay for what you did for me. I want you to be sorry. I want you to feel sorry. I want you to feel what I felt. I want some sense of revenge and justice because of what you did to me, so I'm going to let you have it with both barrels until I feel satisfied that my sense of outrage and injustice is satisfied and you have felt the weight of it. That doesn't lead to reconciliation. It might lead to that person feeling really bad. But you have no relationship left over. This is how Paul addresses this question. Is how, how do we stop suing each other? Is we see each other differently. We recognize that you have been declared righteous and I have been declared righteous and I am not righteous and you are not righteous because of you do righteous things or I do righteous things, but we are righteous because of what God says about us. Therefore, we can come back together and I can repent and I can forgive and we can reconcile. And if we can't do that, we find that hard. I'm not going to go to the world who is unrighteous, who has been declared unrighteous by God with no authority over me whatsoever, to go to them and say, will you settle this dispute? Instead, I'm going to go to the church. I'm going to go to the righteous ones. 
I'm going to go to the ones who are going to judge the world and the angels with Christ forever. And I'm going to say, what do you think? Can you help us to reconcile? That's why I love that these reconciliation ministries exist. They will mediate between Christians when there is a broken relationship or someone's been defrauded. And they'll follow these biblical principles. It's a beautiful thing that that exists, isn't it? So this is the question. What will you say? Whose report will you believe? I think we tend to think of good works and our righteousness, and we look around the world, and the world around us, and we see unrighteous people, wicked people getting blessed. And we see what we deem as righteous people getting the shaft. And we don't know how to answer that question. The world looks at that too, and it's one of the big reasons why people reject Christianity. It's because, I think, we're not actually putting the real gospel out there. Because Paul would say, and Jesus would say, no one is righteous, no, not one. It's not that the righteous are getting the shaft, are getting judgment, and the unrighteous are getting blessed. It's that there is no category of righteous. We're all wicked. We all deserve punishment. And it's only the grace of God that says you're righteous. So at the end of the day, God doesn't you know, have to make up anything to us, right? We're all under wrath unless he washes us and cleanses us and justifies us. I think this transforms the way we see each other and we, what we see ourselves. So this is what I want to pray for. In a second, we're going to sing together just to respond to God. Um, I want to encourage you this morning that if, if you're not a Christian, like this is fundamentally what it means to become a Christian, is to be remade. Not to start on a journey of transformation. Not to start on a journey of becoming a better person. Not just begin a journey of restoring yourself. But in a moment, to be recreated into a new thing of whole new stuff, made of whole new stuff, made of God stuff, made of righteous stuff. And that, that is what you become in an instant when you put faith in Christ. Like I, if, you're, if you've never done that, there's no way for you to become righteous enough for God to call you righteous. There is nothing you can do that's good enough for him to say, okay, welcome in, you, gotta, you get a pass because you're a really good person. You'll never be good enough. The only way is to be remade. And if you've never said yes to him and said, you're Lord of my life, would you, will you recreate me? I want to encourage you just as we sing to do that with God. And then when we're, if you want to come up and talk to me or Vic Spencer standing here, there'll be some people up here that will pray with you. If you want prayer for anything at all, come up anytime during the singing and we'll pray with you. Um, but I also just want to encourage you just as we sing together to let the Holy Spirit reestablish this truth in you. Whatever your track record may be, he declares you to be righteous if you're in Christ. Amen? So let's pray. Lord, I pray that this simple truth that Paul repeats over and over again God, that it would be reestablished in our hearts. 
For those of us who are already believers, God, I pray that we would be reminded of the basis of our standing with you. And God, for those of us who are not believers, God, I pray that right now you would provide them with the faith to believe. You would open their eyes, open their minds, open their hearts to believe you and to see their need to be recreated in you. And God, I just pray that as we sing, that those of us who are holding other people in bondage to their sin and speaking declarations, if only in our hearts, that are contrary to what you say, holding them in a box, in a cage of their own failure. God, I pray that as we sing, that they would, we would be able to release them, to forgive them. Not because they've repented or done better, but because of what you say, because you first forgave us. So God, I pray that this will be a time of just us dealing with real stuff, with real relationships. God, help us to meet with you in this time. In the name of Jesus, amen.